Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 156, where we interview Rich Carey from Rich on Money and talk about financial independence through long distance real estate investing while being deployed overseas. I was always learning. I was always checking real estate prices. I was always talking to investors. Unfortunately, I didn't know about bigger pockets. I didn't know about podcasts. You know, I didn't know about any of these, these internet sites or I read a few books. I was just learning uh, the old fashioned way, I guess. But you just kind of have this goal of like, I'm going to make real estate work. You know, this doesn't seem to work. The numbers don't look great right now, but I'm going to find a way to make this work. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me, as always, is my newly married co host, Scott Trench. Wow, way to ring me in this week. <laughs> oh, you have a ring. Oh, I love it. I love it. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, and show you that by following the proven steps, you can put yourself on the road to early financial freedom and get money out of the way so you can lead your best life. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, or start your own business from a position of financial strength, we'll help you build a position capable of launching yourself towards those dreams. I'm so excited to bring in Rich Carey today because he has a really great story of cautiously investing from a position of confidence and a position of financial strength. He didn't get some wild hair and decide that he needs to be a real estate investor with 100 units today. He slowly started investing in real estate. And then as he had success, he did it again and again and again and again. And the overall message of this episode is don't just jump in with both feet and wildly invest and hope it works out. Be confident in your decisions and execute wisely. Yeah, I, I think I think what I admire most about Rich is, is that he made it so easy, right? I mean, it was it was discipline and it was frugality and it was building a rock solid financial position the slow way taking a little bit more a few more years than maybe he needed to get there but completely having control over every aspect of his financial position having a monster surplus and being able to really do whatever he wants now a 20 year career he's done and and he's got complete control and so that's what I'm excited to share with you today and and excited to bring him in when it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split. 
with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Take control of your investments and secure a stable 8% annual return today. Visit pinefinancialgroup.com biggerpockets to learn more about the fund. That's pinefinancialgroup.com biggerpockets. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. Rich Carey from Rich on Money. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you again. And by again, I mean I was the fill-in co-host on the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast, where you first shared your story back on episode 268. So I'm super excited to see what you've done since then in that time. Sounds like you've been taking a lot of time off and doing nothing, right? Yeah, well, I mean, in a sense, yes, I have a lot more free time, but I certainly stayed busy uh, since retirement a few months ago. So when we talked to you on episode 268, I think you had either 12 or 20 properties. I had 20 properties that were paid off. Yep. Okay. 20 properties that you owned free and clear, no mortgage. That's right. Yep. What were you doing to uh, (laughs) facilitate all of these purchases? Because that's a lot of money. And I think it's perfect for this podcast, and I'm, I'm excited to be on this podcast. It's one thing about my story that I think is unique from a lot of other real estate investors is that I focused on buying paid-off properties. Uh, but the other thing, too, is that the reason I was able to do that, it wasn't so much about like clever financing and no money down and you know using my credit cards to buy houses. It was more about saving and investing smartly from an early age. And then right about the time that I, in 2013, when I'd been in the military for 13 years, I had a good chunk of change in the bank and I had a paid off home. And that's when I started buying houses for cash. So that's kind of the way that I did it, as opposed to maybe a lot of other uh, stories that you hear about something like that. What was your kind of financial situation? Like, like how long had you been in the military in, in 2013? 
So I joined the military in 2000 and, uh, you know, did a 20-year career and retired August 1st of 2020. So at that point, it had been 13 years in the military, with most of it being overseas. Awesome. And can you walk us through kind of what your journey with money looked like, like in the, over those first 13 years? What, how did you get to that point where you had enough cash and paid off home? Right. Yeah. So... I think I was always, I, I think I, to start off, I'll say that I was uh, early on in my career, I'd been reading like Dave Ramsey and I was kind of a, a, a fan of him, at least in the sense of like getting out of debt and paying off your primary residence if, if possible. And I, I got married also in 2000. My wife's also very frugal and good with money. So that was a good start. Again, that's, a lot of times that's the difficulty, right? Is when one spouse uh, doesn't, isn't quite on board, you know, with the whole frugality thing. And that's not the, the problem for us. The old cash flow negative spouse, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think in my case, you know, it was like maxing Roth IRA or maxing IRA and, you know, maxing out savings each month since about 1999 with my wife's help. We also paid off my $32,000 in student debt. We did that in about a year and a half, you know, with both of us kind of doing extra jobs and just, you know, hitting it hard. Another thing that we did, uh, we pretty much put all our extra money into S&P 500 index fund, you know, whether that be in IRA or, in a, or just in the normal uh, brokerage account. Another thing that we did, though, was paid off my primary residence. I bought a uh, townhouse in 2003 in Alexandria, Virginia, which is near DC. And uh, we paid that off in seven years. So that was kind of a start for me. Another thing that I did uh, while overseas was I flipped houses with a partner. I flipped about eight houses. And then, uh, you know, we get to 2013, I have a paid off primary residence in Alexandria, Virginia. I have some cash from investing in flipping houses. And I realized that that was an amazing market for rental properties, certainly compared to my Alexandria, Virginia townhouse, which actually didn't cash flow very well. So I bought six houses while I was in Montgomery, Alabama, and I was only there for 10 months, moved away, went to, uh, let's see, I went to Germany and Korea for the next five years. And over the next, I'd say two or three years, I went from six houses to 20 houses, but I did that all from overseas. And that's kind of how I, I got to where I am now. And eventually I sold that primary residence, took all the cash and use that to continue purchasing houses uh, in Montgomery. So hopefully that's a decent summary. <laughs> I have so many <laughs> questions. Okay, starting back at the beginning, you said you yeah. have a frugal spouse. Did you and your wife talk about money before you got married? Or did you just kind of know because she was as frugal as you were? Well, so here's an example of how we talked about money. So we had been dating for, I think, just maybe two or three months. And she asked me how much money I had in student loans. And I did not like this question. Because uh, that didn't matter. I would just pay it back when, you know, when I was rich in a few years. I didn't know and I didn't want to find out. And she said, well, you need to find out. And, and I was thinking, oh, geez, this is not going to be fun. And I literally had no idea how much I had in student loans. So I had to call like four or five different phone numbers. I think this was even like before this stuff was like easily accessible on the internet. I hate to date myself. So I finally figured out how much it was. I told her it was $32,000. And then she literally broke down in tears. I mean, we're, and we're just like dating, right? <laughs> and wow. so... She said, we've got to pay that debt off. And I'm like, what? Why would we pay that off? And that's exactly what we did. Once we got married, we just knocked that debt out. So uh, I guess in that sense, yes, we had some money talks. <laughs> I love that's your hilarious. wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. You said, moving on 
through your story, you said that you took extra jobs to pay off that $32,000 in student loans. Were You were in the military at the time. So at the time I was uh, just finishing up college. So we were like, I was just about to join the military in my last year of college. And she was already graduated a year ahead of me and she was working full time. When, when it comes to the military, my understanding is that it's possible to have the military fund a college education um, if you're intended to go through there. Did you kind of just go to college and then decide afterwards? You know, actually, interesting. In my case, in my case, I actually I had a full scholarship, and, and this is kind of what this is like. What makes it sort of sad that I had thirty two thousand in debt because I had a full scholarship, and I was even an RA in the dorms, so I lived for free. But I just kept borrowing money whenever I could, and honestly, it was just to keep up with my friends who were, you know, going out and traveling and having fun all the time. But uh, to answer your question, uh, I had a scholarship. A lot of times, when you're in the military as an enlisted member or an officer. There's the Montgomery GI Bill. That usually funds your school either while you're in the military or once you separate from the military. Okay, got it. Thank you for that context. So, you know, it's, I know it's far back in your journey there. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was interesting. It is interesting to, always interesting to see what position people exit college with and enter the workforce in. You said you flipped houses long distance with a yeah. partner. Right. Um, so I flip houses. I live in them. I don't, it's like the shortest distance possible for that's my way, flips. That's, that's way better. <laughs> uh, well, I I would get the heebie-jeebies leaving so much to somebody else because I'm a bit of a control freak. I want to know how you found the partner, first of all, because there's a lot of people on the Bigger Pockets forums that are talking about, you know, I want to find a partner or I had a partner and it was a disaster or I want to flip long distance because it's so expensive by my house. And there's a lot of other people who have done it not successfully as it seems that you have and are warning them against it. And I am more on that side, like, hey, you need to really trust your partner. You need to really know what you're doing and have solid contacts in place in the market that you're flipping before you start thinking about flipping long distance. And clearly you can do it. There, it's not just Rich Carey that's done long distance flipping. There are other people who've done it too. But I'm wondering how you found your partner and like, did you know him forever? Her, him or her? Sorry, I shouldn't be sexist. Right. Yeah. So it's a it's a guy in this case, and he was my neighbor at, when I lived in um, Alexander, Virginia. So that townhouse that I bought in 2003. He was also a real estate agent. Once I moved away. Uh, I kept coming back to DC. We, we come all the time, right? To to like headquarters, right? To do to do like business trips. Every time I came back, I'd go out and look at houses with him and and consider you know other investments that I could do. And I couldn't find anything because at that time, you know, prices were just skyrocketing. This is like you know 2005, 2006, 2007. And he kind of said, "Well, you know, I'm gonna." I flip houses and I have like partners and like, this is what I could, you know, suggest we could do. At this point, I had known him for a long time. I knew his reputation in our neighborhood. Uh, I, I, he was a friend and I knew that he'd worked for Habitat for Humanity in New York City before and like built a bunch of houses. I knew that he understood, you know, contracting very well. He'd been sort of acting as my property manager, uh, de facto property manager, just when I needed something important handled. So that's kind of, I mean, I was scared to death when I did this and I thought it would probably be the worst decision of my life, which is a feeling I've had a lot in my real estate journey. <laughs> but I mean, we flipped eight houses and I think the first five, you know, made between 15 and 25,000 each. And then I think I lost 15,000 and then I think I made, maybe made five and then I lost 10 again. 
then I was kind of like, you know, I'm way ahead. And this makes me so nervous. Um, I'm glad it's working out, but this can't work forever. And I have no control over the process. Now, he did not screw me over. He did not take advantage of me. I believe he easily could have in a number of ways. It's not a strategy that's going to work forever. It happened to make me some money, but I wouldn't recommend it as a, uh, as a way to make a living. I like that you say that because there are a lot of strategies that did work or will work for a short amount of time. And then now it's time to move on and find something else. And I like that you were scared. I mean, I don't oh. like that. I would have I would have loved for you to be very confident and make confident right. decisions. But, yeah. you know, it can be really scary to do this. And did you do one flip with him first or did you do more than one flip at the same yeah, time? Yeah, it was just one at a time. And the, the, the kind of cool thing was he owned houses in this, you know, neighborhood. I owned a house in this neighborhood. Uh, we didn't know it yet, but the, you know, real estate market was crashing. And houses were kind of like, you know, abandoned and just kind of in bad shape and, they were like the worst houses in the neighborhood. And so we kept taking houses in our own neighborhood and making them like, you know, from the worst property to the best, you know, raising the value, kind of raising all the values in our neighborhood by fixing up these houses. So we're kind of like doing both of ourselves and our community a favor by flipping these houses. And I just kind of liked that. And I liked that that was his attitude towards it as well. Okay. So you're not flipping long distance, some random neighborhood that you don't know. You're flipping a neighborhood that you know with somebody that you know who's experienced. Yeah. I just, a lot of people listen to this podcast and maybe real estate isn't their most favorite thing, but real estate can make you a lot of money. Real estate can also lose you a lot of money and you make calculated decisions and you don't just jump in with both feet with some random person you met off the internet. That's for sure. Claims to be some expert, you know, do your research and take your time. And, you know, it's so much better to have missed a great deal than to buy a deal that you're not sure about. And it turns into a dump. Sorry, yeah, I almost I, said a bad word. And I think another thing that I would kind of throw out to everybody is that, uh, and this might be clear already, but I'm different than most, you know, typical, I guess, real estate <laughs> investors that that have been on the maybe the Bigger Pockets podcast or the ones that are just kind of in forums bragging about, you know, how many houses they bought with no money down. I'm a conservative real estate investor. And I would certainly say that I think it's smart, especially if you're a beginner and it's your first property. Like I don't think that's the time to go with seller financing. Like I don't think that's the time to I see some cheering going on by in the background. I don't think that's the time to uh borrow money from your credit cards and buy a house or to raid your grandmother's IRA. I think that these are ways to expand your portfolio once you have experience and you can manage this risk. But that is no way to start off. I mean, it it might seem boring to a lot of people and I'm not going to sell a lot of books, but I think that you save up 20%, buy a property, make sure it's doing well, save up another 20% and do it again. I'm certainly not against leverage, but I'm all for responsible leverage. I love it. I couldn't agree more. I think this is like the the point of the bigger pockets money shows real like existence here yeah, is because we share that philosophy and we feel like, hey, you should be if you're going to invest in real estate or anything else for that matter, like even a long term index fund investment, you should do so from a position of financial strength where your bases are covered and you can afford to invest in that with that very long term outlook or afford to to, to never touch the investment. You don't, you're not dependent on your investment. It's just an accelerator to your position and moves you along towards your goals there. So I could not agree more with that. 
Sorry, that 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 was that was mostly my my chime in with that. Sure. I do want to know, going back to the position that you built up over those first thirteen years, it sounds to me what I'm hearing is you had a disciplined household spending budget, you had a, a military income, which we all know is probably not sky high, but you know there's some advantages to it, and that there's a housing allowance and those types of things. Was your you you had flipping income from these these properties? And I know that you paid, you basically had a, a philosophy of avoiding debt and paying off your house, for example. Two additional questions on that. Was your wife working during this period? Hardly at all. No, I think she worked in maybe 2001 and she tried to work at the beginning, but she really never had an income. Uh, I think she had an income in DC for two years and really that's it. For the rest of the time I was in the military, uh, she did not work. Okay, great. And then the the second question here is, what was your d- defense or discipline? Your 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 what does frugal mean to you? What was your lifestyle like while you were accumulating right. this cash? Well, again, I think I think you know, people are kind of doing the math in their heads and they're saying, well, how did he, how did you buy all these properties? And I kind of want to help them understand, like my income in the military. Now, there's an you know there you can be enlisted in the military, or you can be an officer. So I was an officer in the military. You can you can just like. If you're curious, you can just look those, you know, uh, charts up and see what our pay was, you know, pretty much like my first year through my 20th year. It's, it's, it's no uh, secret. Um, but that's, that's kind of where all my money came from. Frugal to me means, you know, we never, we didn't, you know, we paid cash for our cars, right? We uh, vacationed nearby. We didn't buy uh, expensive furniture. We bought super cheap used furniture all the time. We didn't buy fancy clothes. My wife has no jewelry. Uh, we didn't go out to eat. Like uh, We didn't go out and drink and party. Uh, but everybody else did. But I was like throwing all this money in the bank and throwing it into index funds and putting it into real estate. And it was growing. Uh, no, I did not get rich in a year or two. Uh, I, I hadn't gotten anywhere by 2003. But by 2013, I was kind of surprised to, to find the uh, position I was in. You know, once I was in Montgomery, Alabama, and I'm kind of like, wow, like these houses here are absurdly cheap and they're getting really high rents. And this is like way better than what I'm doing in Alexandria. And I was surprised at the financial position I was in to pay cash for these properties. Now, I could have leveraged these properties and maybe controlled a lot more. But to be honest, like, I was, again, I was scared to death. <laughs> I was in this like new city and, you know, I hadn't invested in, you know, I guess you could say C properties. They're, they're not like scary properties, but they're certainly not townhomes in Alexander, Virginia. I thought maybe I'd buy a few properties and the, pre- tra- I thought I'd buy a few properties and the places just would just get trashed. And, uh, you know, I'd go bankrupt from this whole thing. Uh, but I bought six and uh, it went, awesome. So once I left, I just bought more as fast as I could and as prices went up. So just 13 short years, you became an overnight success with yes, exactly uh, your financial right. position, uh, with that discipline. Love it. Okay. And so was there a trigger for this or was it really just kind of like you'd been doing some stuff on the side over the years in real estate and kind of thought the numbers look really good here? Or was there some sort of catalyst for you wanting to move towards a bigger financial goal? I tried. I've been trying stuff, right? Ever since I, ever since 2003. And, and the only reason I waited till 2003 to buy was because I was in Guam and uh, they had earthquakes and typhoons all the time. So I just didn't want to buy a house there. So 2003, I'm in the States, I buy a house. And all I was trying to do ever since 2003 was find 
more ways to invest. I actually tried to flip. Uh, I flipped new construction and it didn't really go that great. I tried to buy more houses and it was too expensive. I almost bought a house in Monterey, California in 2006 for nine, you know, 900,000 for a uh, two bedroom, one bath. And I'm really glad I didn't do that. When I got to Montgomery, Alabama in, in 2013, I ran into another military member on the first day of class. I was there for a military school. And he introduced himself to everybody. You know, hi, my name's so-and-so. And you know, I've, I've already been living here. I had just gotten there, but he'd been living there for two years. I've been living here in Montgomery for two years. And I've been investing in real estate since I got here. And at this rate, I'll be rich when I retire. Like he just said that. And nobody in the class paid any attention to it. And I was like, what did that guy just say? And I didn't hear another word anybody said, right, for the next uh, hour. And then we were on break and I just like ran over to him and I started peppering him with questions. I'm just like, okay, wait a second. How many properties do you have? Like, how much do they rent for? What do you buy them for? What about management? And I just, and, and he answered all of them. And I said, can you help me do this? Like, I want to do this. And he's like, sure. And so that is how I went from no idea what to do next in real estate to the sort of plan that I have now. And to be honest, I really, I've always been looking for something better ever since then. And I, I have yet to find it. Nice. I, I have two additional quick questions here. One is kind of a deeper tangent here, but you said you've been trying to figure something out since 2003. So for 10 years, you're attempting to try new tactics to build your wealth yeah. effectively. And it sounds like this was a pretty deep interest for you during that period. Is it that right? Was. Yep, it was. What would you say to somebody who's listening here, who's going through the same thing right now? Because you know that seems like a long time to really explore and invest. And I imagine it sounds like frustrating or there was something eye-opening. There's something about this that was different than everything else. Can you walk us through what that was? If there's, if you have anything to say on that? Yeah. Well, I think for one thing, I think part of, I mean, I'm sure somebody could have find, found a way to make a lot of money between 2008 and 2013, but it was kind of a difficult time in real estate. You know, that was kind of, you know, there was a, a, a huge kind of dip in the market and it lasted a while and, and people weren't exactly sure where things were going to go after that. I was always learning. I was always checking real estate prices. I was always talking to investors. Unfortunately, I didn't know about bigger pockets. I didn't know about podcasts. You know, I didn't know about any of these, these internet sites or I read a few books. I was just learning uh, the old fashioned way, I guess. But you just kind of have this goal of like, I'm going to make real estate work, you know? This doesn't seem to work. The numbers don't look great right now, but I'm going to find a way to make this work. Another thing that I had in the back of my mind is, uh, and it's exactly what, Scott, what you already said, when the time comes, I want to make sure that I'm in a financial position of strength so that I'm able to tackle whatever's in front of me without having to hustle or do something uh, risky to make it happen. And so I think for those that kind of feel like this fear of missing out, like everybody around me, is buying you know, 30 units and 60 units every two or three weeks, and I haven't bought anything yet, I say pay off your debt, uh, find a way to, to increase your income, cut your expenses, and have a goal of being in a financial position of strength and just keep trying to find what's going to work for you next. But don't be, don't be upset if you don't buy something in the next three months, six months, or year. For me, I waited quite a long time and I'm happy I did. I'm, I'm glad I didn't uh, double down on the idea of buying two bedroom, one bath in Monterey, California for $900,000, which by the way, went down about 
you know, 35% a year later. There's always somebody getting richer way faster than you, right up That's until right. Yeah. they're getting poorer way faster than you, right? So, all right, last question on this uh, on this state or this this moment in time where you changed into this Montgomery real estate investing path. Um, time. Um, I know that uh, the military offers both advantages and disadvantages when it comes to time being able to allocate to side hustles. Some people are assigned to duty stations or deploy it even, and there's periods of act, intense activity and inactivity. How is your situation setting you up for success with how you manage your time and putting that into real estate? I think, I think for me, one of the keys was while I was in Montgomery, Alabama, and I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I'm setting myself up for success, but I didn't really realize what I was doing. But I had a property management company when I was in Montgomery, Alabama, because I figured I would probably need one when I moved away. And I was only going to be there for 10 months. And it was in my mind, it was like, well, I can test drive right, this property manager. I'd fired property managers before, uh, not in, in Montgomery, but in other cities or you know, in Alexandria. So I was kind of like, I want to make sure I trust these people. And I want to make sure that I also have other people like you know, plumbers and roofers and you know, electricians. I wanted to kind of have all these important pieces in place, real estate agent that I trusted, basically boots on the ground once I was gone so that I could continue doing things. Why do I bring that all up? I think that's a lot of part of how I did this all on very little time. So I had a trusted team in place and I understood the area in Montgomery, Alabama, like the neighborhood that I was investing in very well or the neighborhoods. And once I was overseas, it was just a matter of you know, combing through properties on the MLS or, you know, whoever else we could find them or sending letters and making offers on houses and buying them. At that time, I was turning them over to my property management company to, to sort of get them remodeled. Like if, even if they were in really bad shape, my property management company was managing the, um, not just the make ready, but like, you know, if it's, if it needed extensive work, cause it was a distressed property. I think that might be a kind of a rare thing to use a property management company for something like that. But I trusted these people. They, I knew that they had my best interests at heart. I knew that they were trying to keep my expenses low. And so um, that was working for me. But to be quite honest, once we had all these pieces in place from overseas, this was very easy to do with like emails and text and Skype. It just didn't take a lot of time. It really wasn't that hard. It was just a matter of... Of course, I waited, I waited, you know, 13 years to get to the point where I found something that was great, but um, it just didn't take a lot of time. And I was able to do it on weekends and at night. And to be quite honest, my wife, who didn't work at the time, she sat home all day and, and uh, combed through Zillow and MLS and made lists of things that I was supposed to make offers on. So she was obviously uh, a huge part of the success that we've had. Okay. Let's talk actual numbers. You said a couple of things. You said you bought six and it worked out. So you bought more even as prices went up. Yep. You said, then you continued on and said, there's this fear of missing out and people just want to buy anything. And you're like, no, no, don't do that. How did you buy six? Was it just six all at once or did you buy one and then another one and then another one? <laughs> yeah. So, um, I bought one, right? I, I bought my first one. It was uh, really cheap. It was for, I think, $30,000, right? $30,000, something that rented for $750 a month. But it needed some work. And since I, didn't, since I didn't know what I was doing, I spent about $15,000 rehabbing it. 
and I probably could have done it for about 5,000. And a lot, a lot of bad things happened while I was getting this property ready. And to be honest, again, I thought it was the worst mistake of my life. And I thought that I was going to go bankrupt because of this thing. And I, I had a lot of issues. I mean, the copper, got, the copper got stolen out of the house, right, when it was vacant. Another thing that happened was after I bought it, I, there was a huge you know, pile of trash in the middle of the floor in one of the rooms. When I cleared the trash, there was a huge hump in the floor, right, because something was growing up through the ground and pushing the, uh, and pushing the middle of the room up. And uh, I guess my home inspector hadn't been very thorough, neither had I. So just dealing with like these really kind of random, scary things when I really had, I had no experience with stuff like this. I just had no contractor experience. But anyway, I mean, I did it. So I bought that house. My wife said, well, I guess that was difficult. We probably won't do that anymore. And I said, well, what are you talking about? I want to buy two more right now. So I just kept going. I made two more. I mean, I'm making offers all the time. And I think I had two, you know, except my contract on the same day. And one of them was kind of a real home run in, in terms of price. And then I just sort of went one by one, then four, then five, then six. And if I had to sort of give an average, you know, I'm probably buying on average at this time, average of 45,000, but getting about 800 in rent. So the numbers looked really good back then. Yeah, those numbers look really good. They do, yeah. <laughs> The 1% rule, for those of you listening who aren't into real estate yet, uh, the 1% rule means that you buy a house and you rent it out for 1% of the cost of, the monthly rent will be 1% of the cost of the house. So this $45,000 house that he's buying should have rented for $450 a month. And that's a good rule of thumb. It's not an absolute rule. It's a rule of thumb. So he's getting $800 on these houses that, according to the 1% rule, are $450, which means he's almost getting a 2% rule. For context, I live in the Denver area, and I'm seeing 0.5, maybe 0.6 if I'm super lucky for rents out here. So Rich is doing okay. But I do want to point out that while those are those are great numbers, just if you're listening, this, this rule is not a, uh, a fixed thing here because I, I asked in Denver. And if you take my property, the duplex that I own, which is worth $450,000, and you plop it into Memphis, Tennessee, or Montgomery, Alabama, same structure is worth considerably less because of the location, right? So let's call it, I don't know, I don't know what, but maybe $120,000 in Montgomery, Alabama, making that up. The roof, but, but the, the CapEx is going to be very similar in price. The utilities are going to be very similar in price, those types of things. So that the rent, the cash flow doesn't exactly correlate is what I'm trying to say with that. I can still cash flow in Denver on a 0.6 or 0.7% property, even, you know, and you may not be able to cash flow on a 1.5% property in Montgomery, Alabama because of those, those things. So $700 yeah. less $700 in expenses is zero. 2000, you know, 2000 in rent less 700 in expenses is 1300 bucks. So there's, there's a, there's a, a, a give and take with this stuff. Just if you're listening to understand about these, these rules of thumb and rents. I think that's absolutely true. And I, another thing with the 1% rule is, you know, in the places where you can get the 1% rule now, or maybe back when I was buying, you could, if you could get the 2% rule, what you're dealing with is super high turnover. You're also dealing with crime and, you know, and you're dealing with worse tenants usually. So You've got to consider quality of your tenants, I guess, and the you know possibility of how you know how long they'll be staying. 
in sort of you know deciding how important the one percent rule will be to you. But I think that it's a it's a good starting point if you're kind of just looking at a neighborhood and being like, wait, how much does it cost? How much does it rent for? It gives you an idea if you've sort of got a chance, and it also allows you to maybe be able to compare uh, investments to each other at first. That's right. So yeah, it's a it's a great rule of thumb. So you said something that I found very interesting. You said, I continue to buy more even as prices went up. I am a real estate agent in Colorado and I am seeing prices just like soar (laughs) because we have super low interest rates and there's no inventory and, you know, all the things. People are starting to, well, not starting. People have been asking for years now, oh, the market's going to crash. I should wait until it crashes. And then the market's like, see ya, I'm going to keep going. And I love that you continue to buy even as prices went up. Yeah. I mean, I think I think you have to have an idea in your head of, I'm going to keep buying, you know, until this is like, you know, the cash flow that I'm going to be able to get. And I just kind of knew that's going to eventually happen. I mean, it's just, it's just common sense because both of you hear these numbers and you're like, yeah, that's awesome. I do that. Well, that's what every, you know, that's what everybody realizes when they're coming into these neighborhoods. And pretty soon there's an equilibrium, you know, where the prices get driven up enough where, you know, you're not getting those deals anymore. So I just had this idea of, gosh, we're making a lot of money here, but we better lock some more of these good properties down. And yeah, okay, now I'm paying 50,000 for them. Okay, now I'm paying 55, right? Now I'm paying 60. And actually I kind of, once they were like, you know, getting over, I think I might've paid 62,000 for one. And I was kind of like, I don't know. Now, now I need, I was at 20 properties. Now I need to, to pause and probably wait. And, and I think that there was a two or three year time frame maybe a two-year time frame where I bought nothing. I, I kept looking, but I'm just like, gosh, it's tough to make the numbers work now. So I kind of made that decision. Uh, and then we may end up talking about this, but I had that long pause. Then I, uh, actually it was before retirement, had that long pause, pandemic hits. And then all of a sudden I went out and bought a bunch of stuff, which obviously is, a, is probably a decision worth explaining to everybody. Well, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. What was your plan? You know, 20 years is a big milestone in the military. Um, what were you backing into basically between 2013 and, and 2020 in terms of your plan about your, your life your, and, and your financial goals? Right. Well, I mean, I, I think I always had this idea of, I think I kind of, I grew up in a family, I can't say I was poor, but like we, we weren't very well off. My family was, you know, on welfare at times and, you know, they kind of lived, they kind of lived and still do live paycheck to paycheck. And I was always very bothered by that. It gave me a sense of insecurity. And I had that insecurity the whole time I was in the military. I wanted the 20-year retirement, but I saw people around me sometimes being pushed out the door before they hit 20 years and not able to get that retirement. And I saw it happen to people at the 15 or 16-year point, and that made me nervous. And so I had this idea from very early on that I'm going to be financially independent even if after 20 years, even if the military finds a way to not give me a pension, or even if like, you know politicians decide not to give, uh, you know, military members pensions anymore, which probably wouldn't happen. But I wanted that comfort. And then also knowing, and by the way, if I get that pension, then I'm just sitting very pretty, like very, very comfortable. It's just like, it's extra money. It's travel money. So that's the idea that I had in my head. 
Love it. I think that's a, I think that's a, a perfect outlook on this kind of stuff. And I imagine that you're probably sitting reasonably pretty right now, uh, given having, having taken that outlook. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Saving for a down payment, a wedding, or just looking for extra money to invest? Monarch Money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost, so combined finances become a breeze. Customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com pockets. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. You're trying to save, trying to invest, but your bank account is stuck. How about we get rid of some of those unused subscriptions you forgot about? Trust me, with Rocket Money, it's easy. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Take control over your subscriptions and cancel your unused ones with just a few taps. Create a custom budget, view spending habits, and let Rocket Money negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. 
rocketmoney.com slash BP money. So, so it looks like things are all coming together in 2020 for you. Pandemic hits. Walk us through what, what, what that was like for you and your decisions leading up to August well, this year. So I did my last year in the military, right? I was in Korea for two years. And by the way, while we were in Korea, like from our perspective, like we almost went to war with Korea. So that was a very busy two years or with North Korea. But anyway, I come back in 2019 and I have a year left. I'm in Montgomery, Alabama with my houses. And so uh, I took over management, which actually makes me a lot more money, right? And now I'm making an extra, um, in my case, maybe two to 3,000 a month because I'm managing my own properties. And then I decided, well, I'm here now. So I'm networking with people and I'm meeting people in person and I'm just much more of an ability to get a deal on a house as opposed to when you're overseas. There's no, there's no substitution for living somewhere and making connections with people in the community and knowing investors, you know, and meeting with them, you know, at these meetings and stuff. And so I, um, I bought a sixplex. I bought a sixplex before I knew there was a pandemic. I think I went under contract in February. Well, it came time to close on this sixplex and it's in a historic, historic district here in Montgomery, Alabama. Come to come time to close and the pandemic is in full swing and it's and I was kind of one of the first people where I think everybody's assuming like, well, you're probably going to back out, right? Because, you know, everything's going to, to crap with real estate. And I'm like, no, I think I want to buy this property and just kind of see if I can make it work. Now, if I wasn't in the financial position that I'm in, I wouldn't have done that. Like it would have, it would have just been too risky. You know, I would have been risking like my future. But I was in a financial position and I am in a financial position to take a chance like that where I didn't know if I was going to be able to get rents for the next six months or a year. Or, I mean, who, who knew what was going to happen back in March and, and April? Um, so I went, I, I went ahead with it. And then actually uh, in June, again, just through networking and knowing people, somebody brought a fourplex to me. Now, the fourplex that I bought was a really, really good deal. And I bought that with a you know 25% down under my name. I think, I can't remember the 4%, which seemed low at the time, but I mean, things are getting very low now. And so there I was, I was, I was up 10 units with loans. And then, and then I also bought a, a primary residence. Again, I just, I wanted a place that was like comfortable in mind to hang out with my family. Should we all be stuck working and doing school at home? And so that's exactly what we did. We bought a, a nice, very comfortable house here in Montgomery, Alabama, a lot bigger than I've had in the past. And we used a VA loan, uh, no money down to do that. Is that your first VA loan? It actually is. It's the first VA loan ever. Again, I'm not, I'm not always for, um, oh, I got to find a way to buy, you know, to buy something, no money down. In this particular case, I think I might've had like maybe a hundred thousand in the bank. And that, this is after buying the, the six plex and the four plex. And I was looking at a 16 plex and I was kind of getting excited about it. But there was just too much going on for me with also buying this, you know, newer home, which is kind of large. And, uh, you know, once my wife uh, uh, got into this property, it surprised me how fast we were spending money. Hardwood floors, painting the house, replacing fixtures. I can't believe how many items come uh, from Amazon and Wayfair every day uh, since we've purchased. But um, it's, it's pretty surprising how fast you can go through money in a case like that. So I'm kind of glad that I didn't jump on this other 16 plex and, and get very tight with money and put myself in a position where I would have been uncomfortable. What, um, I think there's, this is, this is fascinating. Just 
stepping back one second here, what, what do you think would have happened to your financial journey if you'd bought this house uh, 10 years ago in 2012 or something like that, or a house okay, of yeah. this, this sort? <laughs> That's an easy answer because I don't think this house I bought is a very good investment. I mean, it's just not. Okay, your primary residence is typically not a very good investment. And it's certainly for a military member, absolutely for a military member. If you are moving every one to three years, and you're not even sure if it's going to be one or three years, um, and, you, and you go into some place like Honolulu, right, or San Diego, and then you buy a house in a good school district that you and your you know, spouse are happy in, and then live in it for two years and then leave and rent it out, you are probably going to lose money. That, like, that is just not a good investment um, for a, a myriad of reasons. And so, and especially with no money, with no money down, you know, you've got maybe you've got a higher payment and you have no equity in the house. And if the market dips against you, it's dip more difficult to sell, especially with a con, you know, with the uh, transaction costs of selling. So I think it would have been a bad idea for me to purchase this house at any other point. Um, in fact, I bought this house knowing that it is probably not a very good financial investment, but my wife and me want to own the property anyway. And that's my way of looking at a primary residence in a location like this. Well, I, I think it's the point. I think you, you, you went through, you, you spent 20 years of a career um, building up a, a real estate portfolio in a financial fortress and a pension and all these other wonderful things. And now your assets buy you the lifestyle that you exactly want, which includes this house. I just think that a lot of people attempt to do that in reverse. You know, we've met, I think, very few people who have achieved a financial position like yours uh, early in life, um, who have done that in a house in a, in, in a housing situation that's you know close to that 35 percent of their income or whatever it is right, situation. Yes. It's just mm-hmm. it's just you can't you can't do it. You can't you can't accumulate cash meaningfully. Yeah. If, you're, if you're buying a house that's at the, you know, that's a significant chunk of your income going to the mortgage or, or those types of payments. It's not an efficient equity in, in investment or deployment of equity relative to other alternatives. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it's just the classic, you, you know, you have to sort of forego the comforts of living in, living in the house you want, you know, when you're 25, 26 years old, maybe even when you're 30, you're, you're still, you know, um, trying to save money on your housing situation with this hope that someday you get to buy that house that you want. And in my case, that's exactly what we did. And another thing that I'd like to bring up is that when I was in Montgomery, Alabama, perfect example of not buying your primary residence, there was a house that we wanted, you know, there was a neighborhood that we wanted to live in. And I'm like, well, I'm a real estate investor. Why wouldn't I just buy the house that I want to live in? Well, because that house, you know, costs $200,000, but it's going to rent for twelve or 1300 a month. When I can buy a house for seventy thousand dollars in a different neighborhood that I don't want to live in, you know, and you know, get a thousand a month. What I'm saying is the numbers just don't make it doesn't make sense to buy. I rented, I rented cheaper and bought houses in a different area as an investment to help pay my rent. I'm doing the same thing. I currently rent. Yep. For that exact same reason. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I think Grant, I mean, I'm not necessarily like a, a Grant Cardone fan, but I, I know he's very against the uh, buying your primary residence. And I, and I do agree with his uh, philosophy on that. 
Well, I think you buy your primary residence once you're in the position, which you have a very strong financial position that can afford you whatever lifestyle you want. And that's what you want. I think yeah. you don't do it until that point. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think you've, I, I just completely agree with your philosophy here. All right. So, so what is next here for you? Right. Wow. That's, that's like the unknown. I want to do more with real estate and I'm hoping to grow my portfolio um, again, I think I went from you know twenty to thirty fairly quickly. I'm managing my own properties right now, and I didn't do that right for the first five or six years that I owned them. I had a management company, and having a management company and like being unhappy about certain things, I think helped me kind of like once I started managing, like, well, I'm going to do it this way, and I'm going to set up my finances this way, and I'm going to do my reports this way. I just had a, an idea of how I wanted to manage them. I've set up a very hands-off management system, you know, where everything is electronic payments. I've gotten people off of electronic, you know, of, of paying in cash and coming into the office and even writing checks. Everyone's on electronic payments. Everyone's kind of on texting. Everybody uses this app. I, I use something called Tenant Cloud, which I think is a little less known than Buildium, but it's very good for small, smaller landlords. And I've just sort of streamlined things in a way where it's kind of like, you know, I, I think I'd like to try... 60 units or 100 units, and maybe even continue managing it this way. And so I have that idea on my mind of you know, finding a way here locally to, to scale up and buy more properties. Another goal that I have is, and I don't want, I don't want to like have a partner or have a syndication or get like four or five people together and buy. I kind of really like doing it on my own. And so that may mean that I don't grow massive fast or become massively rich someday, but I sort of do it at my own measured pace. But at this point, it's kind of a snowball. The measured pace gets a lot faster once you've got some money in the bank. It's just kind of slow at first. But I think the answer to your question is, you know, I want to do something more with real estate because I enjoy it. It's a, it's a hobby. It's a passion. And I've never had the time to do it. And I wasn't even in the United States to do it. So now that I'm here, I'm excited. I'm cautious because of the pandemic. And hopefully this won't matter uh, a year or two from now when people are listening to this. I'm cautious, but obviously not so cautious that I won't buy any property. I I bought 10 units during the pandemic. But you're tentatively buying properties. You're not jumping in with both feet. And I mean, you got a sixplex. Yeah. The rents from that sixplex... I am assuming at least cover the expenses of the sixplex. Oh, absolutely. It's not a home run because it's a B, it's a B property in a historic neighborhood. So I guess it's, it's, it's a property that I'm a little more like, I don't want to say proud of, but like it's a beautiful brick two-story home. It's just, you know, it's, it's from, it's 1910. The people that work there are usually the, like, you know, I don't know, um, state employees, lawyers, it's different. It's a B property as opposed to a C. Now, for that B property, um, I don't have as high of a cash flow. It's also my first commercial loan that I've gotten as well. So that's what I did with that. And then the fourplex that I bought after that, somewhat of a, in my, from my perspective, it was a home run because it cash flows well with a mortgage. And obviously, I had a pretty high bar of, I'm going to go into debt during the pandemic. So I better, you know, it better be something pretty nice, or I'm not, or I'm just, I'm just going to pass, and that's exactly what happened. Let me ask you a phil- philosophical question here, yeah. because you spent 20 years building a, a really strong position, and now you're continuing to grow your portfolio 
because you like it, because it's fun, because it's it's uh, it's something you enjoy, and and there's bigger bigger rewards that come from it as well. Yeah. When I think about something like that, something like uh, the concept of having a very stable, uh, fortified position that clearly gives me enough given goalposts of a great life that I desire is like kind of part A in something I've been thinking about. And then part B of that portfolio is this excess or surplus that you might invest aggressively to build with or play with. Is that kind of how you think about things or do you think you have a kind of a different approach to how no, you're No, it is. I mean, I, I think for me, you know, I'm still uncomfortable with debt. Like, and I, I have these 20 paid off properties and they've been making me like really good cash flow for the past five years. And that's my financial independence right there. Like that's it. That pays the bills without any other money. Uh, I don't even need the pension uh, for, for, you know, if I have those 20 properties. So there's that. And then to be quite honest, I just wanted the challenge of buying during the pandemic. And, and I also want to take advantage of really cheap money. So those are kind of two reasons where I kind of went into debt. And it's a, it's a growing opportunity. I mean, okay, 20 properties, that's okay, not too complicated. Well, let's go to 30. Let's do that with a loan. Let's do that during a pandemic where, you know, I might really have to hustle to figure out how to make things work. I mean, that's, that's honestly what I thought. It didn't, so far, it hasn't been as bad as it could have been, but we're just, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see. And I'm, and I'm ready for whatever life throws at me. But my goal is to continue to grow, to buy more, but I have a higher bar of, you know, what kind of numbers I'll need because of the pandemic. And also I'll be careful about how much debt I have. Got it. I want to talk about your reserve fund. Mm -hmm. Do you have a formal reserve fund for your 30 units? Because when the pandemic hit in March, people on the Bigger Pockets forums were talking about how am I going to pay my April rent? And I'm thinking to myself, that should already be in the bank. Plus <laughs> May's rent and June's rent, right? Like, or I'm sorry, mortgage payment, not rent. I said I said rent. I meant mortgage payment. Those should already be in the bank. Like you should yeah. not be waiting on March 15th to see if you're going to get your if you're going to be able to pay your April mortgage payment. So the 20 houses are paid off, and then you've got the six and the four, and your primary residence, which has a zero down mortgage. So you have yep. three loans. Yeah, and the 20 houses, like if everybody stopped paying rent, that's okay because you, I mean, it's not okay, but it's okay it's because there are- It's very annoying. Annoying, <laughs> but it's all paid off. Yes. The sixplex, and like, did you, okay, I'm throwing a thousand things at you. Yeah. How much reserves do you have in relationship to how much mortgage payments you owe every month? Right. I, I, I never thought about it formally, but I mean, it, you don't need to think about it formally when all your properties are paid off, Right. And I guess since then, since retiring, I also have a retirement income now. Um, the cash flow that comes in every month, you know, is a decent cash flow, right? We're talking, I don't know. I mean, a lot of money comes in, but uh, if you want to be very conservative, at least, you know, you're at least getting ten or $12,000 that you get to keep every month, at least. It, sometimes it's more than that. It, but there's a decent amount coming in every month. I think for me, I have Roth IRAs, right? I have Roth IRAs and I have a, a Roth TSP, which has now been rolled over to an IRA. And there's decent amounts of money in those because I've been maxing those out for a long, long time. And that money can be withdrawn 
you know, it can be withdrawn. You can withdraw the uh, contributions to it without penalty. I hope not to do that, but that's quite possible for me. So I, I don't see, there's no way I could run out of money anytime soon. I've, I've been over conservative with my savings. Do, do you keep, what do you do with your surplus cash? Well, a lot of times, I mean, a lot of times I'll have anywhere between, it's probably not the best you know, deployment of my money, but I'll have between 50 and $100,000 just sitting in, you know, two or three different accounts, uh, you know, ready for the next larger purchase. And it sure makes life a lot easier, you know, when you when you go to close on the sixplex and you've got to show the banks, you know, like the money you have in, in different accounts and stuff. And you're not like, again, you're not like hustling and 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 trying to pull one over on your lender to to make the numbers work. Um, but I usually keep a decent amount of money in cash in the banks. Uh, and then if it's more than that, I like to invest it somehow. I actually did uh, a couple of times now. I, um, I guess I lent money to investor friends. You know, they pay me like ten percent and borrowed the money for six months or borrowed it for a year. These are people that I knew were very good investors that knew what they were doing, and they were just kind of burring properties. And uh, so far, it's always worked out. So right now, I want to plug the Bigger Pockets forums because. I think there's a lot of people that are listening to this that might have some questions. I understand everything you're saying because I've been investing in real estate since God was a boy. I have been doing this forever. I'm in the forums literally every day, even on my days off. I'm still in the forums because it's my favorite website on the planet. Biggerpockets.com slash forums. If what you're listening to Rich say sounds interesting, but you have some, some questions about the comments that he's making, jump into the forums. And there's the answer for every single thing that Rich is saying, there's an answer for in the forums. There's the big, long explanation. The people in the forums are really, really helpful to newer investors who are like, hey, I heard this term, Burr. What does that mean? It means buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. But even that, just like quick little overview. I mean, we wrote a whole book about it. Not we, David Green, (laughs) the host of the Real Estate Investing Podcast. But there's... You know, I'm not sure that everybody who is listening to the show understands that Bigger Pockets money is for biggerpockets.com, the website which helps teach you about real estate investing. Sure. Yep. So, uh, and now I want to compliment you on your strategic way of not throwing every dollar you have at real estate and over leveraging yourself and getting so stressed out and wondering how you're going to pay next month's mortgage. The the fifty to one hundred thousand dollars in the bank at any given time, just waiting to deploy, is the best decision in my opinion. Because and yours too, clearly because you're doing it. But that is. Like you said, the banks want to see that you have money in the bank. They don't want to lend to somebody who needs money. They want to lend to somebody who doesn't need the money. That's unfortunate, Um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is. And that's just the kind of thing that you know after reading the forums for a long time. Banks are going to look for stability from you. And if you've got everything in the stock market in March 1st and then March 20th happens and it drops 20,000 points or whatever, you just lost, in air quotes, you lost all that money until the market comes back up. And conveniently in March, it came back up or the end of April or whatever, it like jumped right back up. Unless you sold, unless you sold. Unless you sold, right. (laughs) But, and that's why I said lost in air quotes because you don't lose the money Mm -hmm. until you sell. But if you're storing your money in the stock market in the hopes that it will grow until it's time for you to buy, it could take a lot longer for that market to come back up again. Whereas if you know you're gonna be buying soon, 
put it in a quote unquote high yield savings account, which is currently paying like 0.8%, which is better than zero, but only by a very small amount. Mm -hmm. But it's still better than losing it in the stock market should the stock market crash. True, yes. And I mean, and for me, having even even prior to going on the Bigger Pockets real estate podcast, you know, I, I had spent time in the forums. And of course, since being on it, you know, you, you become like a little mini celebrity, right? Right. Like once you've been on the, the podcast. So, I mean, the people reach out to me all the time. And certainly uh, that, that podcast, uh, I have to say, uh, more so than any other podcast that I've been on, people just continue to reach out to me all the time on a weekly basis, like several people. Right? I love your story. And a lot of them just want, just want to invest in Montgomery and, and, and want my help. That's probably the most common question I get. But like, I've made amazing connections through the Bigger Pockets forums. People have reached out to me. And as long as you sort of bring value to the person you're reaching out to or try somehow to bring value to them or, or you know, don't just ask somebody to be your mentor, you can make a lot of good connections in the forums. And it's certainly been beneficial to me. I've met a lot of people that I'm working with here now in Montgomery. In fact, the person that brought me the fourplex was somebody that also was uh, hopping around in the forums there. There's a lot of deals that get done behind the scenes on the Bigger Pockets website. Yep. Okay, so we have talked about your investment strategy. I do you have a ballpark of where your money is in real estate versus index funds or real estate versus stocks yeah. in general? I'm a little heavy on real estate because a while ago, um I and and, and I'm going to talk about this. I put my Mine and my wife's Roth IRA, I turned it into a self-directed IRA and I paid cash for properties in those. So four of my 16 properties are in IRAs. I don't think that's necessarily the best way. I don't think that's the best thing I could have done with that money. Uh, I think that it's, you're probably better off leaving your IRAs in the market. That's just my two cents. Again, it's an advanced, I think it's an advanced strategy that you can use once you're stabilized in real estate and you have some money and and you just like want to do more with real estate and you're running out of capital. But what I found with what I did with those IRAs is that it's not the best way to get around taxes because an IRA is a tax shelter and a, um, you know, and real estate's a tax shelter. And when you put a tax shelter in a tax shelter, there's some efficiencies that you lose there. Just if you were to make a big pie chart of your overall asset allocation, you know, what percent do you think is in real estate? What percent's in cash? What percent's in other types of investments? 25% in cash. A lot of it's in equity and real estate, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, there you go. When so, I say cash, yeah, I mean, you know, not in real estate. Now, do you own, do you own any stocks or, or publicly traded securities? Yeah, I mean, my whole TSP, and TSP is Thrift Savings Plan. It's the, it's the you know, 401k equivalent for military members. My TSP is all invested in, it's invested in the S&P 500 index. Well, I, I say S&P 500 index. It was, it was invested in the equivalent because they have these funds that are equivalents, equivalents to our indexes. But I've since moved it out of that, put it in a normal, I guess you could say a uh, rollover IRA, moved it out of the TSP, and then just put it into the S&P 500 index. And that's like where I've been maxing that out as long as I could. Um, you know, for at least going back 12 or 13 years where you can put in right now, I think it's 19,500 a year, but doing that 
and doing and and maxing out my IRAs for my wife and myself, to me, it comes before doing anything in real estate. I do those things first. And then I've got to find a way to have extra money after that so that I can invest in real estate. And I certainly wouldn't raid those things or put those things at risk to invest in real estate. Love it. I think I, I'm completely, I love, I love everything about your philosophy and how you're handling this stuff. One last question here, because I think we've got another large asset here that we haven't discussed, which is just, and we don't have to go into detail, but your pension. Um, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. that's another big piece of your net worth even though it's not probably, you don't probably think of it as an asset in a lump sum amount, but it's an income stream that you're going to be getting for the rest Mm -hmm. of your life as well. So, so I guess to talk about that, you know, you do 20 years in the military and you get 50% of your base pay for the rest of your life. Now that's a little bit misleading because your base pay does not include your rent. The military pays you your base pay and your rent pay separately, right? So, I guess if you do the math, it probably turns out being like 35 or 40% of your paycheck because you're just getting 50% of your base pay and your rent money sort of disappears. So that's what it is. You know, and you can, and if, if you're like curious, I mean, I retired as a lieutenant colonel, you can just like look it up, you know, lieutenant colonel, 20 years, see what his salary is. I'm getting exactly half of that. And I guess yep. it just gets taxed as income. And I think there might even be states where military pensions are not taxed. Ooh, is yeah, well, Alabama one of them? I, I'm actually not sure. I don't think it is, no. Yeah, you can Google I, it and pull it up real quick. I, I just love the way that you've gone about setting up things here. And I want to point out several distinctions in the way you've constructed your portfolio and the way some of the, uh, how do I phrase this completely, cool kids uh, in the real estate community have right. set up their portfolios. You have a financial fortress with a, lar- a strong cash position, 25% of your assets in cash. You've maxed out your retirement accounts for the, almost the duration of your career. You've got mostly paid off properties. You've got a substantial amount of cash flow, which I imagine is way in excess of the amount uh, that you need to live on just from your real estate portfolio, plus a pension, plus those other investments we just talked about, plus the cash reserve. And you're building the portfolio with 100% ownership. Um, so it, seem, it seems like you've now got whatever you want to do, you can do. You're not going to have the 10,000 units you know, that, that, that some of these folks have with their funds, but you yeah. also don't report to anyone or LPs or these right. other investors or these other folks that are lending you money or investing alongside you that you are accountable to for returns and those types of things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sure, it took you a little longer to get that snowball running and started, but how do we make this the cool position to be in rather <laughs> right. than and the I, one and, where and, I've and, got and, that... <laughs> Yeah. I think I am the cool kid, but I, I also think I see the problem with my way of doing things. And the problem is you can't do it fast and that it's not easy. I mean, that's the problem. But what I like about the way that I did things is I think it's highly repeatable. I mean, I think almost anybody that goes about it in the way that I did over the period of time that I did could have similar success. I mean, I don't think I have like some huge lucky event that nobody else could you know, that could explain everything that's happened to me. I mean, I just kept trying things and trying things and being cautious and, you know, protecting what I had already while cautiously moving forward. It's highly repeatable, but it's not, it's not cool, right? It's not cool because, 
if you have bad credit and no money and no experience, you have no way of getting to $2 million in one year. Thank you. Thank you. If you have bad credit and no experience, you are not going to make $2 million in real estate investing in the first year. I really want you to, but that's not going to happen. And there are a lot of people that come into the Bigger Pockets forums, are super excited. I'm going to make a million dollars this year. And then it turns out, oh, that's a lot of work and I need money to do that. And never mind, I'm going to go find something else. And real estate investing is sexy when you look at people like Grant Cardone, who are buying 500-unit apartment buildings every week. But he has money. He has money to do it. He has experience to do it. And Rich didn't start off with a 500-unit apartment building. He started off with one single-family home. Actually, he started off with a townhouse and then moved up. So yes, you can do it. It's absolutely repeatable. It is not fast. And get rich slowly is like... The steady way to get rich. Yeah. It's it's just, uh, I don't know. I, I, I know exactly what you're trying to say and I'm flubbing over my words. But yeah, it's not sexy at all and it's not fast. But I mean, it's still fast. I mean, seven years. Look at what you have built in seven yeah. years. You have been mm-hmm. investing for seven years and you have 30 units. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I mean, it all comes down to like, it's, it's not, it's not sexy, but it works. You know, I think a lot of times people, people will try to use real estate as a way to get out of debt, (laughs) real estate as a way to get rich quick when they've still got other things in their lives that they have to fix. And it's possible. I mean, I, I think there have been people on podcasts who have done it, but those people are in the minority and more fail than make it right with that method you're better off, you know, like, do you want to invest in a property, but you have like no money and you have like bad credit and you have no experience? Well, pay off your debt, get some money, get experience, and then invest in a property. And nobody wants to hear that, but that is the smartest way to do it. And that is, has the highest likelihood of not failing. Okay, I just looked it up and all military retirement pay and survivor benefit program payments are exempt from any Alabama state, county, or municipal income tax. So, hey, that's important for me. <laughs> that's, that's important for you and for anybody else who's listening who has military retirement pay or survivor benefit program payments and want to move to Alabama or are thinking about it. Oh, awesome. And I, have, and I, haven't, you know, I haven't done taxes since being retired, so uh, that'll be fun. Okay, Rich, this has been fabulous. I love your story. I love the fact that you are not just jumping in with both feet and doing everything you can to make the most amount of money right now and, you know, really being cautious. I think that there's a lot of people out there who are promoting this, you know, oh, just do it and figure it out later concept. And I don't like that. I like this, you know, be slow and, and do it right. So you've done it right. You get the Mindy stamp of approval. Oh, thank you. (laughs) It is now time for our famous four questions. These are the same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Rich, are you ready? I'm ready. What is your favorite finance book? Okay. Um, There's a finance book, uh, Nassim Taleb. He has a book called Fooled by Randomness. Now, he also wrote The Black Swan and Anti-Fragile. I feel like that book, uh, maybe more so than any other shaped my opinions about money and chance and the markets. And if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. But basically it's, 
It has a lot to do with understanding and maybe not being a huge fan of like most types of money managers and investment bankers and, and how, how chance plays a role in the success that certain people have. It's a very interesting book. Well, I think I've read that a while ago, but I have to go back and refresh it. But I, I, yeah, there's, it's, it's very hard to tell what's going to happen next. And yeah. 10 tails in a row does not mean the next flip of the coin is going to be tails again. Yeah. It could be. Yep. So what is your biggest money mistake? My biggest money mistake? You know, it's interesting. I went and looked at, I was looking at my TSP, which is my 401k. And, you know, I've been like, you know, I have like this little blog and I, I try to like talk about finance and real estate with people. And I um, always preach that you got to max your TSP, you know, which is your 401k and you got to max your IRA and you got to do it from a young age, no matter what, um, no matter how hard it is. And when I went back and looked at what I did, I think I sort of somehow thought that I started much earlier maxing it out, but it actually was more like, 2011 or 2012 until I started maxing it out. And then I, I did the math. <laughs> if I would have found a way to max it out, where would I be sitting today versus where I am now? And it's astronomical, the difference. I mean, if I just could have maxed out my TSP from the beginning of my career, I'd be in a much better financial position right now. Something that simple, not even talking about real estate. What's the relative magnitude of that? Is that hundreds of thousands? Certainly hundreds of thousands. Yes, certainly. More cl closer to more, you know, I could have made up like a, a million in, in net worth or more than a million. Wow. From, from just 11 more years of maxing out the- Just because, yeah, account. because it's the first years, right? It's, it's, it's 2000 and 2001 and 2002 and 2003. Those are the years that really make you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what I invested my last year in the military, which was easy to do, you know, is, isn't near as helpful as those earlier years. Yeah, that 19,000 has been growing for a year. Yeah. Although it's been a decent year, right? But yes. It's, yeah. Well, you know, it's not been a decent year. It's been pretty The markets warm. haven't been, uh, <laughs> the markets haven't dived yet. Yeah. Okay. What is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? Yeah, I, th I think I've probably said it in, in, in several ways already, but my best piece of advice is don't be so eager, right? Don't be so eager to invest in something now because you see everybody else doing it. Because a lot of the people you see doing it are doing it wrong and are going to screw it up. And a lot of times they tell themselves they're making money, but they're actually not. So invest from a financial position of strength. Fix the problems that you have. Get rid of your debt. Find ways to make more money. Find ways to eliminate expenses and be ready to pounce when that opportunity comes in front, in front of you and you'll be in a position to realize it. Outstanding. That's my favorite piece of advice I've, I've heard in the 156 episode Holy of Your Pockets Money Podcast. <laughs> I'll take Couldn't that. Couldn't agree any more than that. Super high yeah. praise. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question here. What is your favorite joke to tell at parties? Was that, was that one of the questions? Yeah. That is, that is Oops, the question. Yeah. You got to ask it with a completely straight face and see what they come up with. <laughs> That's okay, Rich. I have, nope. I have jokes. I have jokes. Okay, please. I know a lot of jokes about retired people, but none of them work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and a timely... Feeling that these days. Yeah. A timely joke, a timely bonus joke. What do Santa's elves listen to as they work? A whole package of music. Rap music. 
Uh, like yes, Christmas wrapping yes. paper. No, we wrap got it. Oh, no, we got it. Yep. <laughs> Sometimes awesome. they're so stupid, you have to explain them. These are the kinds of jokes that Scott loves. Yeah. Uh, okay, Rich. Where can people find out more about you? Yeah. So I have a blog. It's called richonmoney.com. I'm going to set up like a little page, richonmoney.com slash biggerpockets. And people can go there and just, uh, I'll link to a couple of my uh, articles that I'd like them to read or a little like uh, ebook that they can download of uh, what I like to call conservative real estate investing. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And if people would like to reach out to me, uh, send me an email, rich at richonmoney.com. I love it. Rich, this has been fantastic. I love your story. I love your follow-up story. It was fun to talk to you way back when, and it's super fun to catch up and see what you've been doing. Um, I was being facetious when I opened the show with saying, you haven't been up to anything. Uh, do you ever sleep? <laughs> I do sleep, yes. In fact, I'm, I've been taking life easy. I mean, I was in the military. I had a super stressful job. Uh, life is a lot easier these days. I'm very happy. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're enjoying your retirement. Rich, this has been super fun and I really appreciate your time today. Uh, not that you don't have tons of it because you, you're retired now. Say, so Mindy and Scott, no, seriously, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Your audience is my people. I love this. I encourage you guys to reach out to me. Yeah. Rich is very generous and very, very easy to talk to. So reach out to him if you have any questions about real estate investing or Alabama specifically. Yeah, and 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 thank you, Rich, for just the incredible content today. This was so informative. I learned a lot. I agree completely with your philosophy. Uh, and like I said, I, th- I really think that the way you phrased it, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote it and uh, Instagram it. It's just, <laughs> I think it's just a perfect phrasing for for how to get started in investing. Do it from a financial oh. position of strength. Do it, you know, get everything else be ready for that opportunity when it comes along. And thanks again for just coming on the show today. I always learn a lot. Thank you. It was awesome. Thanks, you guys. Okay, Scott, that was Rich Carey. What did you think? Uh, look, I thought I thought it was great. I think the guy has, again, complete mastery over this world of money and investing. He's not trying to get rich quick. And because he wasn't trying to get rich quick, he got rich fairly quickly and built a, a very sizable portfolio that seems, from my perspective, completely indestructible and like it's going to set him up for the rest of his life very easily with tons and tons of leeway. So look, I think I think that this is the way to go about it. This is the this is where we all want to be in terms of our money journeys. I think right where Rich is today. Yeah. And he didn't get there fast. He got there cautiously. And I think that's the best way to invest from a position of knowledgeable knowledgeness isn't a word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, look, the guy the guy was was extremely disciplined with his budget for a very long time. He didn't make a lot of money. Nothing he did was unrepeatable, but and he spent a large amount of time and a large amount of energy in his free time just looking for opportunities to make more money on the side of his, you know, uh, uh, a very successful but not high paying military career. I mean, what else what could be more simple conceptually than that and repeatable? Than something like that for you, if you're listening, than a story like this, you know, and and I'm sure there are ways. If you're not in the military, for example, don't have that 20 year cutoff with the pension to shortcut some of that or or find ways to earn more income or you know speed up certain parts of it. But man, what a good end state to get to! What a good ending target to to think about. And I love that he is still running the numbers. 
he said at at near the end, he said, of course, I'm still looking for more properties, but I have a higher bar. They they have to meet the numbers that I'm looking for. And again, that's just this position of confidence and I know what I want and I'm not going to just blindly grasp at anything. I'm going to get what I want and I'm okay with being patient to get it. And I love the just the overall message. That's right. You know, Scott, we talked a lot about real estate today because that's Rich's main method to get to financial independence. But I'm sure there are people listening who don't really have a a lot of real estate knowledge. And I wanted to just share the website for Bigger Pockets Forums is biggerpockets.com slash forums. And you can go in there and we have, I think, something like 87 forums, 87 different categories. We talk about real estate all day, every day on real on bigger pockets. And the forums are a great place to ask questions or just read the answers from other questions that you have and learn all about real estate investing so you can have the best chance to be successful in your real estate endeavors. Yeah, the, the way the way I kind of set up my tuning in to this world of investing in real estate is one, I've got the Facebook groups, which a lot of we know now have like eight thousand members of the Bigger Pockets Money Facebook group, but the problem with that, it, while it's a great group and there's lots of things there, and we we have a great time in that, I'm in there all the time, is that you don't really know the the credentials of the person who's responding to you in that Facebook group. If you ask a question, you know you don't know if that person really has that experience, or whatever. It's a great crowdsourced way to get some feedback and and have some fun at the same time. What's cool about the Bigger Pockets forums is you might ask a question in the Bigger Pockets forums about how to get started in real estate or or how to uh, have you know about a specific market, and people will respond. You'll be able to see, wow, that guy's got five, ten years of experience. He's posted five hundred times to the Bigger Pockets forums. He's done seventeen deals. He's got fifteen hundred votes and three hundred and fifty colleagues. Hmm. And this person has no posts, no votes, no picture, and didn't write very coherently. Hmm, which one should I... Where, where's the good advice going to come from? <laughs> and what's awesome about this is we've got guys like Rich who will post in our forums and he'll... And like you might ask, like, what's the best way to get started in real estate investing in Montgomery? And he might articulate his concept. And another equally successful, equally well equally informative poster will come in and describe an opposite approach about using other people's money and a lot of leverage. And you'll get both opinions at once in the forums. And that's what I think is really special about that and a great, a great way to, to do some research and meet some of the real power players maybe in your local community um, on bigger pockets there. Yeah. And we're not saying that Rich's approach is better than the guy who's doing leverage. It's a matter of what you're comfortable with. Rich isn't comfortable with being leveraged to the hilt, so he's not. And this other guy is comfortable being leveraged to the hilt, so he is. And when you see the different arguments, maybe you'll start to identify with somebody else's approach better. And it's it's just, it's a great way to get a large picture of how people are investing in real estate and investing successfully. Yeah. Mindy, how many posts do you have? In the forums at these days, seven thousand something. Oh, jeez! I'm only at seventeen hundred. You've well, maybe your job should be to post in the forums every single day, Scott. I probably should do that more frequently. So, boy, I wonder what seventeen hundred is still not too bad, though. All right. Well, okay, should we get Scott, out of here, Mindy? We should. From and go episode, post in the forums. <laughs> from episode 156 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Scott Trench and I am Mindy Jensen saying later, skater.
There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month, four kitchens and bathrooms you can renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can afford? Which market and which deal is best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions, all to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devtha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. That's biggerpockets.com slash F-O-U-R. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.